Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I am your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host, Bryce Johnson. And our ultra time transcranial producer. Oh, oh, I crept over from the other side. You did, yeah. This is a little bit of a foreshadowing of where I'm cognitively at <laughs> this point <laughs> in a three-parter about the men in black guys with us always is super producer riley bray oh okay guys so <laughs> i like the unhinged energy we're coming in just right gotta, out of the gate i gotta tell you it's appropriate for it i'm yeah, on four hours of sleep i have uh i have consumed nothing but men in black and Disneyland for the past 36 hours. Wow, That's perfect. an odd combo. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like I am in prime resonance for mm. any phone call that wants to come in that's going to give me piercing month-long migraines uh, wow. and messages from beyond. So I feel like wow. I have – I think I have nullified my soul to a to a receptive pulp for any mm. infiltration by sinister mm. dark forces. That's what I'm saying. I've done this. Close the gate, Michael. Close the gate. <laughs> I've done it to myself. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, like, I'm stand. I feel like I'm getting on a roller coaster, and I know where the next. No, it, do- it doesn't sound like go. that at all. No, not at all. You seem <laughs> yeah reserved, if anything. Okay, right, great. right. You're coiled. It's <laughs> nice for our <laughs> listeners. Uh, as of this recording, today is May the 4th. It's Star Wars Day, and mm-hmm. I've been so busy. Not only have I not watched any Star Wars content, I haven't even watched the new Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer that dropped today on Disney+. Plus. Oh, wow. that's, that's commitment. Wow. I didn't even yeah. know about it. That, wow. Oh, yeah. That being said, Man. I was at Star Wars Night at Disneyland last night, and it was a blast. Let me tell you. Wow. No way. They look pretty cool from your Instagram stories. I was, I was like, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. There was a moment where we were walking past the Rivers of America, and uh, Finger and Dan and the modal nodes, the Cantina Band, came floating by on a raft playing that famous mm-hmm. Cantina music from the original mm-hmm. Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And it was like watching three alien greys, like... <laughs> suddenly appear in disneyland you should it have was, been on acid oh yeah. 100 Some, someone was yeah for sure yes absolutely <laughs> it was Jedi. it was one of the most surreal and joyous moments i've had in quite god some bless time you sir that's god awesome bless you. it was Love great that. it was great um obviously we're doing men in black part two continuing may in black we're talking about these guys all month long um but before we dive into part two and boy oh boy are we deep diving this week everybody mm. let's do a little clip well you know what i didn't even ask how are my boys how are my bigfoot boys i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> we're great man we're chill totally. we're yeah we're ready to do this thing man yeah Absolutely. i'm ready for michael's story time okay just let's, yeah. Yeah, give michael's special this. this is you've, you've, tonight. you've brewed up a doozy tonight is uh michael's version of special feelings corner um 
Okay, let's do some clubhouse keeping. Bryce? Sure. Let me uh, break out the old Swiffer here. Summer's coming up, guys, fast, which means you need to stay cool and show off the guns, right, with some brand new T-shirts. We have so much amazing merchandise that's on sale right now in the BCC merch shop. All you got to do is just click the link in our bio on Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club or in the show notes of this episode, gear up. Get a great farmer's tan and one of our BCC shirts. I love them. You need them. Get them. What else is there to to talk about? And if you want stickers, if you want mugs, we got those too. Yeah, the stickers are tight. Tight. Mm-hmm. Um, put I got an stuff. EPP. What's that? You can put them on stuff. The stickers. I put them all over my, my various items. You could get a mug and then put a sticker on the mug and then have two pictures on your mug. Exactly. No, I put my mugs in the dishwasher. I don't know if that would work. Mm, good point. Sorry, I don't mean to spoil your fun. Stickers. Sorry, buddy. Sorry. Some of us yeah. are hand washers. Bro. Dad talk. <laughs> <laughs> now you got to be careful how you stack the dishwasher. Okay, <laughs> that's so true, man. A well-stacked dishwasher is truly so satisfying when you used <laughs> every square inch just perfectly. Optimum is this when we're announcing Bryce's? Uh, spinoff podcast dad's dishwater dishwasher dish <laughs> no fuck no no <laughs> how, bryce how stressed out do you get when you pack the car for a family vacation no no uh not too bad don is don is meticulous in her detail for uh you know logistics like that but it can be stressful um but you know keep it chill great Speaking of keeping it chill, this is a chill APB to Club Scouts from all timelines to support the show and join BCC The Other Side. It's our Patreon. For just a $5 monthly pledge, you'll receive a minimum of three bonus episodes every month. Plus, we'll thank you on the air eventually. And if you upgrade to $9 a month, you'll unlock the Ultra Terrestrial tier where you'll get additional weekly cosmic music tracks from none other than Riley himself. And I just want to say mm-hmm, real quick, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, now, you guys know this, but I don't know if all of our listeners know this. When right. you join the Patreon, you get a private RSS link. You plug that into your, fam- your favorite podcast app. Maybe it's also famous. Uh, and And you just listen to it like a whole second podcast. It literally runs parallel to us on your favorite podcast app. So you don't got to be on the laptop to listen to it. If you want Mm -hmm. to, that's great. It's a whole other companion podcast. And we've been doing a lot of fun stuff over there. And we will, by the way, be dipping into some May and black stuff over there exclusively on the other side. So if you're enjoying this, the stuff that we don't have room for on these episodes, we are putting them over there uh, on the other side in the next couple of weeks. And those b- cosmic tracks, you can just download those, put them in your in your music app, put them mm-hmm. in your, uh, what was it called? I wasn't going to say your Zune. And then just, <laughs> you have your own collection of Riley's music. Keep them forever. They're yours. Yeah. They're yours to keep. We can't take them away once you download them. And you'll be supporting the show and keeping everything going over here on the regular main stage uh main stage yeah we'll just say main stage that's fine the main event the main event uh if you don't have five bucks give us five stars drop a five-star review on apple podcasts and we might read it on the air (laughs) like this one 
from uh, uh, underscore minus 11. Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> That's the title of the, the uh, review. It's nice. Caps. Uh, you're never alone when Michael, Bryce, and Riley are here to soothe your every interdimensional nightmare. Talent and charisma ooze out of the earbuds as they take you through laugh-filled journeys of the highest strange variety. <laughs> Five stars. That's a review. Uh, Love it. I'm just going to start reading these every morning before when I get out of bed. <laughs> Instead of scrolling Instagram, I'm just going to read our positive reviews. These yeah. are so great. They make me feel so good. Yeah, yeah, that's really nice. Thank you. Oh, yeah, minus, minus 11. 11. You know what's up. That's great. Yeah. Love you that. do. All right, everybody. Clubhouse keeping is done. If you've, yeah. if you've fast forwarded through that, uh, hey, if you can hear my we voice, don't blame you. we're skipping through. <laughs> this, is where right the, this is where the Men in Black stuff starts back up. All right. We appreciate it, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Let's just get into it. <clears throat> it's time for this week's story of high strangeness. Mm-hmm. February 1968. A UFO investigator named Jen Stevens was living near Albany, New York, when she, her husband Pete, and their teenage daughter started receiving some very strange phone calls. Mm-hmm. Caller would ring. Stevens or her husband or daughter would pick up to hear the sound of strange clickings, as Bryce Johnson might say. <laughs> oh, that was good. Sounds. Yeah, clicking, clicking. clicking, as well as mechanical buzzes and high-pitched beeps and tonal sounds that sent pain through the jawbone. Night after night, the strange calls persisted, setting the family understandably on edge. The telephone company claimed that they were unable to trace the calls. Someone at the company suggested it was possible their their home line had been tapped. Jen probably thought to herself, maybe someone interested in my UFO work. As the calls continued to torment the family, Peter was doing business in downtown Schenectady when he stopped in a coffee shop for lunch. Moments after taking a seat, a tall, strange man entered the cafe. The cafe! Hey. <laughs> Welcome to the cafe! And ordered a cappuccino! <laughs> <laughs> strange man entered the cafe and took a seat next to Peter. There have been people watching the night sky every night school show. I'm sorry, I beg your pardon? The stranger, as if knowing Peter's wife was a UFO investigator, launched into a one-sided conversation about UFOs. Peter sat there, keeping mom, trying to uh, shut down the conversation. You know the feeling. The stranger strikes up an awkward talk. You just want to be left alone. It was like that. But for Peter, it was lined with that strange dread. And maybe this stranger and the mysterious phone calls are somehow connected. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just paranoia. Or maybe, just maybe, his family was being watched. It certainly didn't help that just before getting up and leaving, the mysterious man told Peter, People who look for UFOs should be very, very careful. This encounter was told to John Keel by Peter and Stevens, uh, and Jen Stevens in his book, The Mothman Prophecies. 
And not long after that conversation with Keel, Peter died suddenly under mysterious circumstances. Don't like that. Nope. <laughs> Shortly after his death, Jen gave up her UFO research. Now, had the stranger's warning somehow come true? Had Jen ignored the warning? Should you even be listening to this podcast right now, dear listener? No. I mean, yeah, no. <laughs> no, you should. Yes. For sure you should. You should. Yeah. You should definitely. Tell your friends. Well, proceed if you dare. Because it's time for the Men in Black Saga Part 2. Spooked. And I, rem- I want to remind our listeners that primary sources for this week's episode come from The Real Men in Black by Nick Redfern, The Mothman Prophecies by John A. Keel, as well as The Myth and Mystery of UFOs by Thomas E. Bullard. And of course, some other random selections throughout mm-hmm. our books, mm-hmm. our libraries, and our internets. When we last left off in our investigation into the mysterious history of the Men in Black, it was October of 1953, and Albert K. Bender, a saucerist from Bridgewater, Connecticut, founder of a robust global community of amateur UFO investigators, the International Flying Saucer Bureau, had just disbanded the group and discontinued the publication of his monthly homemade magazine, Space Review. Hell yeah, which Riley owns. <laughs> We're the proud owners of a copy. Did you get it in the mail? It hasn't come yet. Okay. Oh, man. I've been, oh, I've been checking the mailbox like a kid. Like, <laughs> he's like, here, my space review? And it's what not. If you open up, what, if, <laughs> what if you open up the mailbox and a, like, Men in Black just, Men in Black just, oh, like, no. oh, squeezed yeah, out of the mailbox, <laughs> legs first, like, and then, and then like, put his, his weird, like, uh, rubbery fingers on each side of the mailbox and just pull himself out. Oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah. Oh, I would say, I'm good here. Good morning, sir. Jeez. How was your trip? So great. Yeah, I didn't even realize that. You fucked up, Riley. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's going to be fine. We're good. Mail order MIB. <laughs> According to Bender, he had been visited by three unidentified men in black suits who revealed to him the true nature of UFOs and then swore him to secrecy or else. At first, it was widely believed among his fellow saucerists that the men were from the U.S. government, although Bender, shrouding himself in mystery, would neither confirm nor deny this theory. As we touched upon in Part 1, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI had been poking around the fringes of the UFO phenomenon, particularly interested in gauging whether or not civilian investigators posed any kind of threat to national security. It was the 1950s. The CIA had also founded the Robertson Group, which, among other interests, wanted to quietly keep tabs on civilian UFO groups like the IFSB and sister groups like the Civilian Saucer Investigation and the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization over concern for their potential irresponsibility and, quote, the use of such groups for subversive purposes, end quote. Cold War paranoia was growing, and there seemed to be no explanation behind what was at that point in time a flying saucer boom. These, wow. yeah, these government agencies may have been thinking, how might the Russians use the flying saucer flap to their advantage? 
Could it be taken advantage of in some way to launch some kind of sneak attack? Alan H. Greenfield, a Gnostic bishop, magician, and author of The Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots and The Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, explained to researcher Nick Redfern in The Real Men in Black how this might have been a real possibility. I think the idea of a Soviet attack was much more mythic than the UFOs themselves. But if you put yourself in the position of U.S. policymakers in 1952, that was a perfectly plausible scenario. And then when the Robertson panel was conceived, the conclusion was that the private UFO organizations that were coming into existence at that time, just like Bender's IFSB, could be infiltrated by communist agents and used to set up a, a false UFO flap. There was the suggestion made that it might be in the interest of national security for these private organizations to be watched closely or, or even to be closed down. Now, not in an overt sense, as that may have created some, you know, well, some civil liberty issues, but perhaps, you know, send someone to the door to talk to the leading person in the organization or to witnesses, scare the bejesus out of them. Which might yes, well because as we've all learned in 2022, the government really cares about our civil liberties. Bender's colleague Gray Barker, a tricksterish figure himself, who would go on to dramatize Bender's involvement with the Men in Black as well as the Flying Saucer era in his 1956 pulp paranoia opus, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, claimed that he, in fact, had been visited by the FBI just a few months prior to Bender's life-changing MIB encounter in August of 1953. Mm. Barker's visit by a government spook seems a little less threatening than Bender's visitation by comparison, the latter of which had climaxed after months of increasingly paranoid episodes involving Bender and mysterious entities with glowing eyes watching him at the local movie theater, strange, yeah, phone, right, call. Right. Yeah, strange phone calls, and his <laughs> attic apartment being searched. Spider room. The spider room, the if spider, our listeners will recall. Right. Right. Yeah, the, the chamber of horrors. <laughs> Also, I failed to mention in this paragraph that Bender was also dealing with these ongoing migraines that he felt that were being implanted in his head uh, by his watchers. Mm. Probably having a manic episode, but, you know, uh, we don't know. During the heyday of the IFSB, Bender had promoted Barker to chief investigator and had even printed out and shipped Barker some nice business cards touting his esteemed new title. Apparently. Yeah, I know. Right. Nice. I kind of want a chief investigator uh, business card. We should print those out. You should have one for for Big Collectors Club. Yeah. Yeah. You can be chief investigator. Uh, It's like such a bullshit promotion. You're going to be chief USO technician. (laughs) Really? (laughs) You got it, mister. I think Bender was, I think Bender was just really happy to have a friend. And I think Barker, I think Barker liked Bender, but he also, I think liked watching him get worked up. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think he liked fucking with him. Um, apparently, one of those business cards ended up in the hands of an FBI agent through a series of events unrelated to Barker or the IFSB. According to legend, there was a man in Florida who had obtained one of Barker's business cards, who ended up in a hospital after an epileptic fit, and somehow the card was collected from his belongings and turned over to the authorities. 
<laughs> Curious as to what exactly a flying saucer chief investigator might be hiding, the FBI agent who ended up with that business card paid Barker an unannounced visit at his home in West Virginia for a little look-see. According to Gray Barker, the FBI agent knocked on his door, presented the questionable business card, and began asking a string of questions about the nature of the IFSB. Barker nervously explained that it was just an innocent group of UFO nerds. Not my words, not his. Fascinated with the phenomenon and having a good time swapping stories and collecting eyewitness testimony. G-Man, satisfied that Barker and his friends clearly presented no real threat, thanked him for his time and left. Everyone was getting worked up over nothing, because it seems like in 1953, everyone was fucking paranoid. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Barker, not sure if the story about the epileptic man was even true, wrote a letter to Bender back in Connecticut pontificating on why they would be under any kind of scrutiny. Now, bear in mind, this was two months before Bender had his own encounter, right, in in his apartment. So stories like Barker's encounter with the FBI agent, if this is in fact even true, there's no historical or government record of this visit, just Barker's story, could only help to worsen Bender's increasingly manic state of mind and probably contributed to the paranoia leading up to his own visitation by MIB a couple months later. In fact, some people in UFO circles think that Barker was actually fucking with Bender, encouraging his paranoid delusions because he got a kick out of seeing him all worked up. Yeah, I don't buy that, man. I, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Who would do that? I mean, you have to be pretty sinister to get your, you know, to... to perform an act of like deepening someone's paranoia and fear i mean that's some cold-blooded shit i, well, I don't know yeah. i think it might be more complicated yeah. than Bar- that parker may have not known how bad it actually was because they didn't live yeah. in the same city they were only corresponding and he parker, certainly seems to be a joker in this yes deck, and uh, parker, parker admits to himself that he's like you know he likes to pull pranks and pull jokes so mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. possible that you know guys we all hang out with people that are not respectful of other people's feelings you know what sure. i mean like it's possible that he just didn't know how bad it was and uh yeah it was it's it's weird it's a weird I think they had sort of a little bit of a toxic friendship. I don't know. Mm. You know what I mean? No, I have no problem believing that, a, you know, perhaps an FBI agent visited Gray Barker. I mean, they had field offices all across America at this point. And, and you know, listen, they kept a busy day. Well, so if that we meant are dropping gonna, by someone's office, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that in just a moment. And, and a lot of what's coming up in the next couple minutes was actually found in internal memos that were released as part of, you know, Freedom of Information Act and mm. stuff got declassified. Right. And a lot of this stuff that you can confirm that the FBI was investigating some of these groups. The one right, thing great. that hasn't yep. turned up is any actual internal memo saying we went by Gray Barker's place. Gray Barker's, interesting. Out. So it could be totally fabricated. It could be totally fabricated for Gray Barker's own personal entertainment or his version of the story. But we you know, and, we just don't know. Point, we just yeah, don't know. To your point, even if he, even if it never happened, and just you know, sent the idea to Bender's way, it could help inform Bender's experience that exactly. would come later with the exactly. strange 
MIB that would visit him in the theater. And Listen, they could have both been getting worked up. You know what yeah, I mean? Right, we, right. This is this right, is this, right. is this is all going back to what I was saying last episode of like, there's all these sort of like different personalities woven in. It's you know over 50 years ago. We we don't know what's real and what's not real, but obviously something was going on. And I think everyone for sure was paranoid. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Everybody. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep. So after Bender's abrupt dismantle of the IFSB, Barker would go on to create his own magazines, The Saucerian, which would eventually become The Saucerian Times, which saw a healthy run from 1953 to 1962. And of course, the release of his speculative UFO work, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, in 56. That not only cemented Bender and the MIB into UFO lore, it also highlighted cases like the Flatwoods Monster, the Maury Island UFO incident, as well as other 1950s-era close encounters. It also crystallized the thing which got Barker into UFOs in the first place, the Shaver Mystery, as an essential influence on the phenomenon which claimed that UFOs were not from outer space, but from an ancient civilization hidden deep within the Earth. They knew too much about flying saucers would also ultimately find its way into the hands of none other than J. Edgar Hoover himself. In 1958, Hoover sent out a memo stating, I'll read my own memo out loud as I normally do. The Bureau desires to obtain a copy of the book written by Gray Barker entitled They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Reportedly, the book was published by University Books of Illinois. Contact this publishing house and, if possible, obtain a copy of this book. That's all for now. Yes, sir. Sorry. Here is your lingerie. Over the course of the 1950s, the FBI was becoming a focus of conspiracy in UFO literature, and Hoover's office began receiving letters and inquiries about their possible harassment of Albert K. Bender. Word got around the Bureau, and ultimately, Hoover wanted answers. In an extraordinary case of self-fulfilling prophecy, Hoover sent actual men in black out into the field to investigate the UFO phenomenon and the Bender's boogeyman versions of MIBs. Okay. Okay, we got to just to stop for a second. Yep. Think about the soup that's being yes. created yes. right now. The paranoia yes. and fear of being visited yes. by the FBI and then actually Hoover catching wind of it and yes. sending out men of his I mean this is creating something. Yes. This is I mean cuz this is where it all this, where it all bubbled up. You this know, this is, is where it started. This is when you start manifesting your own paranoid delusions. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Right. Yeah, self-fulfilling so, loop. This old, yeah. So, uh, what did uh, Riley say last episode? A negative feedback loop. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, yep. all of this further polluted the field with G men amplifying paranoia and blurring the line between what was real and what was metafiction. However, after reading They Knew Too Much and looking into the FBI's history, the FBI officially concluded that their records had no information pertaining to the hush up of Vendor. Or Barker, for that matter. Yeah. So, right. does that mean that Bender's boogeymen weren't from the government? I think well, so. Bender finally broke his silence in a 1962 book titled Three Men and the Flying Saucers. In this, book, I love that flying flying saucers has to be in the title yeah, of the book. It's yes. coming out that way. I that was ray gunned by a flying saucer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just love these are really 
Uh, uh, oh, so, sorry. Excuse me. Uh, it's called Flying Saucers and the Three oh, yes, Men. Of course, of course, and so, of course. in fact, <laughs> Flying Saucers actually gets gets lead uh, uh, lead credit there. Uh, so like his book is called Sitcom or something. Flying Saucers. The Three Men, not as important as the Flying Saucers. Yeah. Flying Saucers and the Three Men. Yeah, that's right. My Weekdays three flying saucers. Uh, in this book, Bender finally revealed the truth about UFOs that he had kept secret for nearly a decade. Only now able to share it because his harassers in black had vacated the planet. Wow. In this updated version of the story, the night that the men in black visited Bender's attic, they encircled him, placed their hands on him, Bender blacked out. When he came to, he was aboard a flying saucer with three men who took him to their secret underground base in Antarctica. <laughs> the men in black were not government agents. They weren't even human. They were aliens who had been visiting Earth to harness a power source from seawater. Oh. It is this race of alien beings that were responsible for the recent flying saucer flap of the 1950s. And they told Bender, You are charged to keep our secret. We do not wish to take extreme action, and you will find you will often consider giving away some part of this information. When you get such thoughts, you will be reminded of the consequences by headaches, which will be almost unbearable to you. At such times, be aware of much more serious conditions. We can was that Leto-esque enough for you guys? Mm, very Leto-esque. Mm, great, yeah. Great. Now, that wild story may have explained Bender's personal MIBs, whether it is to be believed or not, but it doesn't serve to explain other MIB encounters that took place before and after. One case that added to the mix-up nature, mixed-up nature of the Men in Black and government agencies was sent from an unidentified source to UFO researcher Harold T. Wilkins. And it allegedly took place in January of 1953 in the offices of a Los Angeles-based law firm. According to Wilkins' source, two tall, strange men in black suits just showed up for work one day in high-ranking positions in the law firm. According to the witnesses... The MIB stood at six and a half feet tall and displayed anatomical abnormalities. Specifically, their hands and wrists seemed to have no joints. Mm. No one in the office would or could explain where these men came from or why they had been hired. But one strange detail includes an incident where one of the MIBs was seen displaying superhuman-like strength after crushing the top of a file cabinet simply by leaning on it. <laughs> Eventually, someone in the company, maybe Wilkins' source, called the FBI, and when Uncle Sam came by to investigate, mysterious men in black vanished and were never seen again. Apparently, the file cabinet was taken in for, an, for analysis by a, a, a chemist... And it was determined that the damage to the file cabinet could only have been caused by a force of at least 2,000 pounds or greater. Okay. 
A ridiculous story? Surely. But another example of the strange and inexplicable behavior of the men in black. Over the course of the 1960s, more UFO uh, witnesses, eyewitnesses, were reporting visitations from strange men in black, asking them questions about what they saw and or flat out telling them to forget what they saw and to keep it a secret. Another key individual responsible for expanding the mystery and myth of the men in black was paranormal investigator John Keel. We're going to get into Keel, Mothman, and the Men in Black's presence in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, right after this break. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. John Keel is a name that's come up a ton on this podcast. He was a paranormal researcher theorizer and author of books like Strange Visitors from Time and Space, The Eighth Tower, Operation Trojan Horse, and most famously, The Mothman Prophecies, which we, Bryce, Riley, and I mm-hmm. unpacked oh, in, yeah. in great detail a couple years back over on the other side. That was a fun one. I like that. Yeah, man. Good deep dive. Books yeah. are great. Mm-hmm. Great book. A little out, a little dated, which we're going to touch upon a little bit, but but a why a very readable book and involves more than just the Mothman. It gets into lots of UFO and lots of men, men in black stuff, which is why we're bringing it up. Um, you just sub- gave his book review a, a, a readable book. That's got to a- be like the worst book review <laughs> you could ever, no, ever get, no. right? I don't think so. A readable, a readable book. book. <laughs> well, I think very readable. All is the like words pro- make sense on the page. <laughs> you guys know what I mean. Haven't you ever said to no, like, I, I can't mean. fucking. Like, oh, it's super oh, watchable. Yeah, 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 totally. Super watchable. Yeah. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. No, I got you. It's a book you can read. Michael McMillan gives it two thumbs up. <laughs> I want to put that on the jacket of a book that I write one day. Just, just that huh. that review, a readable book. <laughs> <laughs> so Keel, who uh, is spells his name K E E L, uh, he was born in 1930 as Alva John Keel K I E H L E. He began his writing career at the tender age of 14, spent his early life reporting on the mysteries of the East, mysticism, and occultism. It's no wonder he would eventually end up on the forefront of the unexplained. Generally speaking, Keel theorized that angels, demons, aliens, and cryptids might be 
might all be different forms of the same ultra terrestrial trickster intelligence making contact with the human mm-hmm. race perhaps right. both to enlighten us and to toy with us here is alan greenfield's take on keel he was a reporter now he was a sensationalistic reporter he would write the kind of uh, i found the island of hungry woman type stories for men's magazines back in the day that was a genre he worked in for a for a very long time now there was shall we say some definite poetic license in Keel's writing, but he was an absolutely fascinating individual to sit down and talk with, and he had a spellbinding voice. I would not refer to him as a friend, per se. I mean, the guy actually gave me the creeps. <laughs> if he'd put on a black suit and come to my door, I surely would have thought, this is one of the men in black. <laughs> And this kind of backs up and tracks a sort of pulp nature that we uncovered when we read the Mothman prophecies, you know? No doubt. He spent, like we joke about in the episode, he spends a lot of time sort of commenting on women's bodies in the book. (laughs) And, you know, but but if you go, which obviously we're like making fun of and isn't great in today's standards, but if you think about the fact that he used to write these sort of Russ Meyer-type pulp fiction and these articles that were sort of geared towards horny dudes of the 1960s it makes sense that he would sort of sex up some of this stuff a little bit Mm. and make it a little just slightly slightly lurid and slightly pulpy Um, well great 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 instincts man this stuff is sexy man i love it i do well Fair enough. It also comes with some uh, other problematic territory that we'll get into in just a moment. But he's a character from a different time. Yeah, for sure. But um, but I I I don't. I just say that not as a way to discourage people to check out the Mothman prophecies. I think they should. But just you know, put into context. Oh, this guy was coming from sort of a pulp narrative standpoint, and it's interesting that those were the guys. Kind of like well, Gray Barker too, that were that were getting into. It, of course, it makes sense that the pulp guys were the guys gotta, who who were going to get into the UFO shit because no self-respecting quote unquote reporter of the of the era would 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 demean themselves to get. Yeah, into well, that. of course, and, and, and you got to. I was going to say, I mean, you got to understand he was way ahead of his time, too. I mean, everybody were just, especially in the 50s and 60s, these things are, you know, metal ships from outer space. He was yes. sort of the first one to kind of be like, hey, look at this over here. Hey, this has a commonality with this strange phenomenon. Oh, this is, you know, he was sort of the one to come up with these out-of-the-box theories about the paranormal that, that are starting to resonate today. You yes. Know? So, uh, way ahead Absolutely. of his time. And and I do want to add that where Gray Barker sort of considered to be this sort of like, you know what, I'll make it up if, you know, like, I don't know, I don't care, I'm kind of making a buck, I'm sort of this P.T. Barnum. It does seem like John Keel was genuinely interested in the phenomenon and actually was trying that. to get to the bottom of it and he was a contemporary with gray barker he knew gray barker um but he also i think was into what jacques valet was putting out there about you know this extraterrestrial intelligence might be the same thing as fairies might be the same thing as ghosts so i do think he really really wanted to he wasn't cynical he wasn't cynical where i think barker may have been a little bit cynical it was one of the first subjects he couldn't wrap himself around mm-hmm. the truth of it yeah, you know yeah. what i mean and it kept him fascinated to his own demise now you know i don't know about you guys but i mean for me nothing 
conjured up images of MIBs more than what happened in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, all the strange happenings that took place there in and around 1967, including the visitations of a devil-like winged monster with glowing red eyes and huge quads that began terrorizing <laughs> the small town. I always have to see him with, with large ca- calves and quads. quads I, yeah. yeah, he's just got good quads. Uh, first appearing to horny married couples and then culminating later in the devastating free collapse of the Silver Bridge that took the lives of 46 people. That's right. Mothman does not skip leg day. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I think it's very interesting to note that according to Keel in his book, it was none other than Gray Barker himself who called him up and told him about the Mothman in the first place. Strange. Wow. Uh, this is Keel directly from the Mothman prophecies. When Gray brought the matter up, I thought he was joking. A red-eyed bird with a 10-foot wingspan who loved to chase speeding automobiles seemed utterly ridiculous. Now, if it had been a 10-foot-tall, hair-covered monster, I might have taken it seriously. But Gray was convinced it was no joke. And he may have been right, because as the story goes, on a dark night in November of 1966, friends Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette were doing what you do in a small town with nothing to do. You find cool places to make out or a place where you can light shit on fire. (laughs) Well, what the friends <laughs> chose the former, okay. and they headed down to the old West Virginia Ordnance Works, where they used to make TNT for the war efforts. Now abandoned, it served as a place for the wayward to ransack and hang out. Driving around, the pair felt an uneasy presence, as if they were being watched. And it was not much later that their fears would be confirmed when they all saw two glowing red eyes off in the distance, daring to look closer revealed a giant gothic horror of a creature standing at around seven feet tall. They saw an anthropoid figure with what looked like an insect's head with huge fiery red eyes and giant leathery wings that unfurled from its grotesque back. Horrified, the couple hightailed it out of there, but far from done with them, the creature took to the air where it chased him from the sky while occasionally dive-bombing their car. They raced straight to the sheriff's office not just to report the strange creature, but to find safety. And that night would kick off a series of events that would later become known as the Mothman Prophecies, which included but was not limited to UFO sightings, strange premonitions, multiple visits from the winged creature, and of course... Or nefarious men in black who started showing up on the scene asking eyewitnesses questions about their encounters and about what they had seen. Especially one Mary Heyer, a journalist who wrote for the West Virginia-based Messenger newspaper, who began collecting and writing articles about the bird monster that was terrorizing the small town. Heyer had an unsettling visit by a short man dressed in an all-black suit and hat with thick black soles on the shoes of his feet, who tried his darndest to complete his task of intimidating Mary, but was immediately distracted by Mary's shiny ballpoint pen. Upon noticing the strange man's fascination with the instrument, she casually offered it up to him, which caused him to take the pen, shriek with delight, and make his escape out the front door. I would love to to leave a room in that fashion. That would be just <laughs> delightful. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to note too that like 
here of uh, all of Mary's interaction, she keeps she keeps saying that in these instances, the men in black spoke with this like high pitched, almost elfish like voices, which is really mm, creepy, creepy to me. Yeah. Months later, on December 22nd, 1967, shortly after the events of the Mothman encounters ended and Point Pleasant's Silver Bridge tragically collapsed, killing a number of townspeople weeks before Christmas, Hire was visited by two men in her office. Keel describes them as dark-skinned and Asian-looking, dressed identically in black overcoats. Now... I just want to make a quick note here about Keel's description of MIBs and the Mothman prophecies. For me, personally, it feels a bit dated and problematic when the strange other is described as Asian-looking. It drums up negative connotations of Asian people in Pulp Fiction and pop culture. And Keel seems to hit the foreignness of some of these MIB a little too hard in the book. Although he does include instances where they are pasty and ghoulish-looking. Now, we don't mean to propagate negative stereotypes. I'm not sure how much of this is an invention of Keels and or other researchers or is based in the actual eyewitness descriptions, but I've seen it reported elsewhere. It exists in the lore for better or for worse, and therefore that's why we included it here. Mm -hmm. Good side note. Thank you. So let's just clear the air. So the two men started to question Mary about the reports of UFO activity in the area. She conceded that there had been quite a lot of sightings recently. They asked her what she would do if someone asked them to stop reporting these stories. And Hire's response was, I'd tell them to go to hell. Yeah, man. And you know what? Perhaps they did, because as Mary turned away for a few seconds, the two had vanished as mysteriously as they had come in. Later that same day, another Boom. man. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Boom. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Later that same day, another man visited Mary with, quote, unruly, long tapering fingers. He wore a cheap looking, ill fitting black suit, slightly out of fashion, and his tie was knotted in an odd, old fashioned way. Strangely, he wasn't wearing an overcoat, despite the fierce cold outside, end quote. How come every time I bring up uh, a men in black walking into the room, my dogs start barking? <laughs> it happens you, every I time. I don't know if you want to know the answer to that yeah, question. They know. They it know happened last episode, too. Mm -hmm. So this man spoke in a high-pitched, sing-songy voice. That's the thing that I was saving. Sing-songy. I, I mean, honestly, it could just be me on any given day that I'm talking to my neighbors, <laughs> to be fair. Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, but he told Hire that his name was Jack Brown, and he identified himself as a UFO researcher. Stammering, he asked her the same question the two men asked her, men asked her earlier that day. What would she do if someone ordered her to stop printing UFO stories? Now, this is where the story gets even weirder. When asked by Mary if he was the man, if he was with the men that had visited her earlier that day, this Brown, Mr. Brown, told Hire that no, he was a friend of Gray Barker's. He kept repeating this point while requesting that Hire take him to locations where she and Keel had seen UFOs. 
a request higher politely refused. Okay, I want to I want to pause real quick here because now I don't know why this didn't occur to me before this moment. If Barker's a self-proclaimed prankster, is mm. it possible that he has sent John Keel down there to research something that's real and really happening, but then also hired people to go down there dressed up as men in black and fuck with him? Yes, absolutely. Man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And maybe, I hate to say it, but sure, you can't rule that out. Yeah. This is what I'm saying by him fucking with people. This is what I'm saying with him fucking with Albert K. Bender. That part of the joy of this tricksterish Barker is that he's like, no, there is this Mothman thing going down there. It would be as if, it would be as if, Bryce, that mm. you're out there filming Expedition Bigfoot. And, and mm. Riley and I both believe in Bigfoot. But we also decide that we're going to hire some man in costume to show up and march around your camp late at night and freak you out. <laughs> Which you know we're what I mean? Not doing, I don't like by this. We're definitely not doing that. We're definitely that. not doing that. I just that. want to reiterate. Yeah, we're not doing that. But maybe the reason this guy was stammering was because he was like, you know, it was sort of a Borat prank that he was hired mm. to do and didn't feel comfortable doing it and kept going, I'm, yeah. a, I'm, a, I'm a friend of Gray Barker's. Because why else would Gray Barker come up? And maybe well, he actually was a UFO researcher that Gray Barker had been like, hey, do me a favor. Because Gray Barker was in West Virginia at yeah. this time. He was from. But, so he might have been sending people down there to fuck with John Keel. That's certainly a possibility. I don't think that's the case because why <laughs> why why eliminate just one strange thing, albeit the men in black? I mean, people were seeing strange lights. This fucking winged creature was no. pro- popping up behind people Christ. and scaring them. I, I no, I get your point that that he could have yeah. easily done that. But I'm saying, no, no, no. you know, there's oh. No, I'm yeah. saying all this stuff with the Mothman and UFOs could have been absolutely really going on and right. a real thing. It's just that Barker's having fun spicing it up by throwing in a little disinformation to screw sure, with his buddy while sure. he's down there. So okay. John Keel is actually getting eyewitness reports about UFOs. He's actually seeing UFOs himself. Mary Heyer is actually seeing UFOs. There's also government men in black Cadillacs, because they talk about it in the book, showing up at Mary's house and taking pictures of her house and then driving right. away. But then I could also see Gray Barker going, you know, it'd be really fun if I just send a couple guys over there dressed up like a couple weirdos and just to freak them out a little bit more. You know what I mean? Yeah, so he's I don't like mi- this idea. That's a dick well, move. I'll say that. Yeah. It is, cool. but I th- I think it's possible that that was what was going on. Which again, what's metafiction yeah. and what be- and yeah. what is what is real? You know what I mean? Yeah. He's it's mixing- hard to deny when you in, in when you enter that prankster element of of a guy mm-hmm. like Gray Barker, anything's up for grabs, man. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So I'm just saying we have to keep that in the realm of our mind. It doesn't mean that none of this is true it just means that some of these it's things all true michael it's it's all true. True. word for word every Stop bit of it every last it's bit it just is it's so murky right yeah. you know what i mean yeah. it's so hey, murky you know it's not murky the mothman museum have you guys ever been there <laughs> no, I, I haven't but i would love, love to. to go yeah love it's a pretty go. cool place you guys if you're ever in the obviously point pleasant west virginia area it's something you got to check out uh pretty cool great um we'll put a link to that in our show notes if you want to go peruse it i know that some of our listeners have actually met up there 
Oh yeah, um, yeah. Oh, that we've so had cool. some BCC listeners like, that. let's have a let's have a meetup at the Mothman Museum in in West Oh, Virginia. that's so cool. Oh, I love that yeah. so much. That's so cool. Maybe we should awesome. like figure out a way to do like a live show or something there. Sometime. Oh my god! Oh, a wouldn't dream. that be a trip? Love that. A dream. BCC tour one day. Okay, so <laughs> we've presented some eyewitness testimony. Sure have. Uh, and we've we still have more encounters to talk about. Mm. But, but Michael, I, wanna, I want some evidence. Yeah. You well, know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I, I do. I'm itching for some evidence. I do, you know? because Concrete. a lot of this seems yeah. to be all described by people who have an interest in writing and selling books, frankly. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> about true. flying saucers and zines. <laughs> so is there any physical evidence of the MIBs? Now, I wrote in my book, Sexistance, <laughs> in my notes. Hot. That's a good-ass word Hot. right there, Sexistance. That's, that's like the name of like I'm a futuristic R&B album. That's like that the name of the album M- right there. Yeah. MIB Sexist. Hold on. Wait. MIB, <laughs> MIB Sexistance. I want that to be the title of my book. MIB <laughs> Sexistance <laughs> is the name Sexistance. of the Club Bryce comeback album. Yeah. <laughs> there it Sexistance. is. Very no, Club I, Bryce. I don't, yeah. I don't know. It's Sully's the word. I, it's, I think it uh, rides above Club Bright. Maybe not. Maybe I'm I think mistaken. it has to be MIB. Dude, don't, don't underestimate Club okay. Bright. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, don't, you're right. Don't, you're don't right. underestimate the power right. of a deep house track. Mm, That's true. Mm, maybe some a deep house jazz fusion. Yeah, this is good. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Ooh. I'm writing this down. Okay, continue, Michael. I'm so, putting this down. <laughs> believe it or not, there does exist some photographic evidence in heavy quotes maybe of (laughs) the men in black right we have two classic photos that allegedly capture mibs on film the first is a photo snapped by timothy green beckley a ufo researcher who was investigating a case where mibs had been harassing john j robertson and well, now somebody just deleted that photo oh, from the thread. I, I didn't. I accidentally moved it. I was trying to save it to my desktop. <laughs> oh, that, that you're just cool. going to. Oh, you just moved it in the document. I moved it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry. So you guys can see. You're gonna have I was to... like, I need, oh, yeah, I need to save it. that. All right. Yeah, yeah. All right. I was trying to Sorry. save it. It's a great Sorry, image. listeners. Don't touch the Sorry. pictures. I'm not good at. <laughs> Command Z. Command Z. Oh, yeah. Right. I can undo. Right. Yeah. And by the way, I know how we're doing this. Yeah. These photos will be (laughs) these photos will be in uh, our Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club. So you can check them out for yourself. So the first photo snapped by Timothy Green Beckley, a researcher who was investigating a case where MIBs had been harassing one John J. Robertson and his wife, Mary Robertson, a couple from Jersey City who were part of the larger UFO community on the East Coast. Robertson was the secretary of the National UFO Conference, and Mary was a psychic. For a few few weeks in 1968, they had noticed a zombie-like MIB in a black hat and dark suit and sunglasses staking out their home in Jersey City. Beckley was informed that strange phone calls as well as good old-fashioned poltergeist activity around the home had soon followed. Beckley and fellow researcher Jim Mosley decided to drive over to their house one early morning and scope out the area for the strange man. Sure enough, As they drove around the block, they saw a man dressed in black leaning in a stoop across from the Robertson's home, and Beckley Beckley quickly snapped a photo, capturing the individual. 
They rounded the block, parked a car, and when they came running back to the spot where they had photographed the MIB, he was gone. Mm. And, according to the Robertsons, never to return again, and the activity stopped. So take a look at that photo, Riley, and what do you think about this? It's kind of a creepy photo. It's a very creepy photo. He a little bit looks like the Monopoly man. He does. Uh, it would it would be such a great gatefold album cover. I was just like, oh. ah. that's why I 100%. accidentally moved it in the document. I was like, I need to say that. That's really. And good. I would say, I would say, like the hat looks a little that's too tall. Going on my ultra terrestrial tier for sure. Yeah, I was like, ooh, that's good. I like that. Yeah. I, I I do I do think the hat looks a little too tall. The suit looks a little bulky, and his eyes. While this man, so we're looking at a black and white photo of a man in a suit in profile, and I do feel like. The man, either their sunglasses or his eyes look a little bulging. And that's something that also comes up often in Men in Black uh, stories is that their eyes seem to be, I forget what the term of that is. I should have looked it up, where their eyes are like bulging out of their head a little bit as if they have a hyperactive Mm. like thyroid or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There also, look at the look at the legs too. Like the the, the, the pant legs. line ends in a weird spot. The foot mm-hmm. looks really weird. The proportions mm-hmm. are off. Mm-hmm. Like that's it's something is really I don't like it. Not right in the sort of it doesn't. It's not. It, you don't really see it too until you look more closely yeah. at the figure, and then it's like, what is going on here? Also, like, where is the guy's left or his right arm that's facing camera it doesn't i think it's behind that pillar it must be but he's leaning back on it in a weird way yeah it and is, he's holding his other arm really weird it's a, it, it's very it's very odd it's a weird image. photo but i'll say like beckley himself even admits in in red fern's book that like He's like, I don't know. Maybe we just saw a weird guy in a suit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I've also seen that guy in San Francisco and Berkeley, like <laughs> yeah. a lot of times. He's like, times. he he does go on later to go like, maybe we just got excited. I don't know, but he, but I think he does leave the door open to be like, you know, they said there was a weird guy across the street yeah. staring at them. We drove there and we saw it. You know, yeah. <laughs> and they took a picture, and we're glad that they did. Which they just scared, me, they just scared off a uh, a lookout for a drug runner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's all it was. But, but to me, yeah. that's kind of good enough. Or maybe you know, uh, John or Jack, as he was called by his friends and Mary, were just a little bit. Again, everyone's fucking paranoid. <laughs> you know what mm. I mean? Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, speaking of paranoid, the second photo comes from Alan H. Greenfield himself. Remember, he's the author of the Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots and the Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. Gnostic bishop, magician, cultist. One year later, after the Robertson incident in June of 1969, Greenfield was attending the the aforementioned National UFO Conference in Charleston, West Virginia, when he noticed a strange man in black, in a black suit, black sunglasses, and a fedora, weirdly not black, wandering around the conference floor. And Greenfield at the time had been very much interested in the MIB phenomenon. And this is also like, you know, within the year or two after Keel's Mothman prophecies had been published. And he felt like this individual fit the type. He he claimed that he looked a little loose fitting with a face that was put together like putty slapped together. Uh, And he marched up to the guy 
and asked him boldly to know, want to know what was he doing there. The man instantly got up and robotically made a swift exit. Greenfield, camera in hand, followed him out into the empty streets and he asked the man point blank, Hey, who are you? To which the man replied, I'm a man in black in training. To which Greenfield proclaimed, Then you won't mind me doing this, motherfucker. <laughs> didn't say motherfucker, but he did he snap his picture. We don't, we don't, we don't know that. Well, he, <laughs> I am taking his version of the story, but he, 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 he took his picture, and immediately after this interaction, the man ducked around a nearby corner. And when Greenfield followed, he turned the corner, rounded the building, to find the guy had seemingly vanished into thin air. Now, here's Greenfield's photo. If you want to take a look at that, Riley. Yeah, yeah. He looks like he belongs in Devo. Yes, 100%. <laughs> this guy just looks like a fucking hipster to me. Yeah, he's yeah. like a German raver. Yeah. He is ready yeah, for the like party. rock, modern synthesizers, <laughs> and drum machines. And yeah. I, I, take it, I take it personally. I scramble your brain with my machines. I take it personally that a man who himself has a uh, face that is wont to be puffy and apple cheeked, that he would describe this guy's face as being slapped together with putty. He just looks like a slightly doughy white boy from the late 60s. I yeah, tend to agree. Uh, and mean, rude. Don't. Yeah, come on. Come on now. Like, <laughs> I don't hey, know. I think this guy is very. <laughs> got bold features this is a very handsome photo of a man in black if that's Thank exactly you. what he is. Yeah, what if we found out what if, striking yeah what if we looked a little closer and realized it was one of our dads <laughs> that would be a tr- like wait hold on doug is that, what the fuck that what the? oh my god what the god i that wish that would be creepy I wish. <laughs> yeah. I do too. I mean, to be the right. to be the legacy of MIB. Wow. To be oh, the right. offspring of an yeah, MIB in training. <laughs> we should mm-hmm. all be so lucky. Oh That's God. so sad that all of us are fantasizing that we would have a father who was an MIB. <laughs> Part robot. Red uh, lipstick. Part weirdo. <laughs> Now, we have a few more cases we thought worth mentioning before wrapping up part two of our Mm -hmm. Men in Black saga. But, man, has this been enlightening. You know, there's there's so many cases. I mean, you know, you kind of got to just pick and choose your favorites. There's one I liked, and it's the case of Philip Spencer. And we covered this. But in Mm -hmm. 1987, apparently he stumbled upon an alien creature on Ilkley Moor, Yorkshire, England. So this is a phenomenon that wasn't just limited to uh, the States here in America, but also overseas as well. Uh, we covered this alien of Ilkley Moor uh, with our special guest, Janine Haddad Tompkins, on BCC episode 114. Check it out if you're interested. That's but right. Lucky- Janie was yes. there. Do you remember this episode with Janie? Riley, maybe I should put this photo up. It was the photo of like... The guy it's had been a great going photo. across yeah. the moor, and because there had been weird lights, and he snapped a photo of like a, a, a little creature coming down a rocky bluff, and then there's even like a square-shaped UFO hovering in the background. Do you remember this? I do. Yeah, I remember that image. I, yeah, I don't specifically remember the details, but I, I, the image you're. you're I'm going to include that photo in the Instagram Good, yeah. as well. I should have put yeah. it up here in the doc yeah. for all of this, but well, so what I could made have moved his encounter? Sorry. Just Google Alien of Ilkley Moore and it'll pop right up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great photo. Really creepy, too. Check it out. 
Now, luckily for Officer Spencer, he had his trusty camera with him to snap a photo, which we've just talked about. And perhaps it was this rare occurrence that was the type of thing that catches the attention over at MIB headquarters. Hmm? Yeah, Hmm? so this is a bit of an update to that story where Spencer, again, allegedly snapped a picture of a little E.T.-like entity. Now, I did turn any of this up in my original research so oh. a little slap on the wrist maybe if I've no, done a no, deep dive it's a new little tidbit to add to the puzzle yeah. Yeah. yeah but apparently Spencer so also apparently Spencer experienced a missing time which yeah, didn't right. come up at all um, and then was later visited by two men in black suits who claimed to be from the Ministry of Defense identifying themselves as Jefferson and as Davis They appeared on his doorstep one evening and wanted to know where that photo was. Spencer lied and said that the uh, he'd given it to a friend. And oddly, that seemed to satisfy the MIBs who quickly left. Spencer was baffled. He'd only shared his story at that point with three civilian UFO investigators. Now, I have to sort of interject with them. Maybe it satisfied the MIBs, or maybe also it completely baffled and boggled them, you know, because I feel like in reading there's these stories, there's on any basic given day, the MIBs are either totally on or completely off their mark, right? It's like there seems to be this possibility to discombobulate them and send them, you know, scrambling back to their big black Cadillacs or whatever the hell they're flying in. You know, to use your own words, Michael, it's very Bugs Bunny-esque sometimes. Uh, You know, perhaps Mm -hmm. they didn't know how to follow up this line of questioning once, you know, he was like, I don't have the picture. They just sort of melt down. Yeah, they might have actually been thrown off by the concept of a friend. Like, it might have just been that. They were like, what is a friend? Oh, fuck. We don't know what this is. You know what I mean? Okay, bye. Totally, totally. Well, I found a researcher, Chris O'Brien, seems to agree. I found this quote of his. The men in black tend to be badly briefed. It's like they manifest for a particular task and they know what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to say, but they exist in a framework of having no context. In other words, they're almost like manifested beings or manufactured temporary entities that don't seem to have any sort of depth to them. And I get that feeling too sometimes, right? Like they have this one task they're supposed to do or this one witness they're supposed to intimidate and they go there and they fumble around and they try and eat pudding that doesn't yeah. work and you know they're bringing up ufos <laughs> they're and, and they're bamboo they're like completely they're, yeah. like baffled by like what a pen is yeah totally. this- and, it, and it fries their mechanics and they run out of batteries and we must i must go this <laughs> this idea we're gonna get into more in part three for sure but I I'm really fascinated by this concept mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'll say mm-hmm. and you know I'll think more about this I wonder if UFOs themselves aren't the same. Yeah, right. I I, right. I I wonder if flying saucers that suddenly appear and disappear aren't exactly the same as these things. Right. Yeah. That it's they exist in the moment they exist and then they're gone. Right. This is what I mean like they seem to be some of this stuff, even Bigfoot Right, Bryce? I mean, yep. again, yep. don't want to get into part three too much. This is where I always come back to the idea of them being some sort of waking dream. You know, mm-hmm. where they fully mm-hmm. materialize, they seem fully real, and then like that, they're gone. I, and I've been loving this idea of these words, short media clip. 
you know, mm-hmm. whatever that means. But I feel like that's close to the truth of what this stuff is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk more about that for sure in the, yep. in the next chapter. Great, great. Another case, I mean, that I, <laughs> you know, you can't leave on the desk is that of Lauren Coleman, legendary cryptozoologist who had a, an interesting encounter of his own with the MIB back in the 70s. Speaking they, of yeah. Bigfoot, like, here we have a cryptozoologist having yeah. an encounter with Men in Black. Jumping into the fray, that's right. Coleman wrote numerous books on Bigfoot and was also writing on the subject of the strange and hidden. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Lauren Coleman's an American cryptozoologist who's written over 40 books on a number of topics, including pseudoscience and subculture of cryptozoology, which, of course, you know, at some point is going to cross over into the strange. And maybe it was Lauren's digging up of the weird that put him in direct contact with the MIB. As Coleman tells it, One of the weirdest meetings I ever had with what I thought could have been a man in black took place when a Lieutenant Applegate visited me in Decatur, Illinois. I was looking into the mysterious mad gasser of Mattoon and related Latter-day entities. And one of those entities, unfortunately for namesake, was the Enema Bandit. (laughs) That's right. You heard that right, guys. The Enema Bandit. Now, his real name was Michael Hubert Kenyon, and he was a very human person. And in December, he pleaded guilty to six counts of armed robbery, as Coleman recalls. Quote, He targeted co-eds, picked out the most overweight of two or three bound women, and gave her an enema. (laughs) Questions? This took a weird turn. Yeah, this did take a weird turn. But I I feel like it might lead somewhere, but probably not. But anyway, we're going to follow it. Now, according to Nick Redfern's book, The Real Men in Black, in a chapter titled Mad Men and Monsters, Coleman dug deeply into the exploits of the Enema Bandit that ranged from Illinois to Kansas and Oklahoma to California. As Coleman remembers, At the time, as I often do, I was writing individual letters to many newspapers in the country, trying to track down what they had published on what I thought was a very human crime. The pattern of similar activities that were directed to mainly women victims interested me in terms of the configuration of the mad gasser attacks. I wanted to make certain that any bizarre human examples that seemed to follow the random model of the gasser be compared. Now, for those who are paying close attention, note here the whiff of an all-too-familiar motif of alien why, intrusion. Why did you have to say assist. whiff? Why did you have to say whiff, Bryce? <laughs> well, the right, like, whiff. I mean, we're talking about informing the phenomenon or bringing your preconceived notions and ideas to the phenomenon. Here, once again, we have this strange and bizarre tale of a, someone who would break in and give woman an enema. Anyway, well, apparently... <laughs> Coleman's it does digging. seem I just like wanted to move you, right on from that. It, it actually seems like you just want to talk about enemas all of a sudden. <laughs> it's enema talk. Oh BCC my god! Boys. Well, apparently Coleman's digging into these things. Whether it was the Mad Gasser or the Enema Bandit, caught the attention of our strange black-clad friends because late one night at Coleman's house, he heard a, you guessed it, a knock at the door. And guess who was there, Michael? That's right, the Men in Black. I was. I, you didn't give me a chance. I, was I didn't say even get you a chance. You already told but I know us you it was knew the, the answer. Black. I know you knew the answer. That's right. We I did. You're right. <clears throat> well, 
Coleman remembers like it was yesterday. A darkly suited, very thin man who said he was with the Decatur Police Department. Decatur, Decatur, Decatur. sorry, Decatur. I, I don't Decatur. mean to correct no, you're you. right. Decatur. I, Decatur, Decatur, come Decatur. on. Right. He identified himself as Detective Lieutenant Applegate. I don't recall seeing an ID as those were much more trusting days. He was checking to see if I was the enema bandit <laughs> and why I was digging into this story. He said I should stop researching this series of cases. It was a strange and startling encounter. However, Coleman had an uneasy feeling about the strange encounter, so he did some checking around, like a guy who used to write to newspapers might do, and come to find out there is no Lieutenant Applegate at that department. Surprise, surprise. And to put a little cherry on top, Coleman, quote, Years later, in doing more work on names, I discovered that Applegate was another name for the devil in some literature. Very spooky encounter indeed. Which brings me to the question, Michael, are the MIB and demonic presence or entities related? I need to know. Well, well, um, I love that that's where we landed on this chapter. Um, <laughs> look, you were looking for strange and weird. We got Applegate devils and animals and MIBs. Uh, it takes balls to land on a carrier, you know? That's <laughs> why they let only the youngest pilots do it. That's right. That's but right. here I am, landing yeah. it right on the spot. Well, Bryce, to answer your question, there are lots of theories as to what okay. the men in black might be. <sighs> and okay. we will explore all of those in the concluding okay. chapter of this saga, Men in Black Part 3. All right. That's it for this week. Uh, what do you think about this latest chapter in these stories of encounters with men in black, Riley? Well, it took an unexpected turn. Really, I'll say that. It really did. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to end with demons and enemas, but I mean, I'm here for it. You know, Hail that's Satan, when you, you know? when you call in Bryce for backup. <laughs> I love it. That, but the, the, I mean, isn't that the point, though? Because, like, the whole thing with this is this, like, it's so, like, weird and, like, nothing yep. quite, like, fits. And it's all just right. this sort of, I mean, and if it is, you know, some sort of trans-dimensional thing, like, it would be weird and sort of a, a feel random to us, you mm. know. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like the tone, the tone of the story told uh, suits the subject. And, uh, I agree. I, I, I commend you both. Totally, That's what I have to say. Well, thank you. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, uh, we will conclude the story of the men in black in the next chapter. Please send us your uh, theories, your reactions. I want to give a shout out to everybody who uh, gave us positive feedback on part one. Uh, that was great. Um, thank you so much. Um, guys, before we say goodbye, should we plug anything? And I don't mean anybody's butt. <laughs> that's a whole different podcast i'm not following that yeah <laughs> enemas no he's uh, following it he's just not following it he's not, yeah, he's not fo- <laughs> expedition bigfoot sunday nights travel channel discovery plus be there exactly uh i mean you know please we we we, we pitched it at the top but subscribe to the patreon i promise you'll like it there's so many episodes they're honestly really good if you like this and you're listening to this part of the episode you will love the patreon please subscribe 
Uh, yes, agree. Thank you so much. And also check out my uh, other podcast, Slate Your Name. We're heading into episode 11. I can't believe it's actually a full functioning uh, podcast, but here we are. I talk to actors about the ups and downs of working in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. So please do me a favor. Check that out. Subscribe to that on your favorite podcast app. You you guys will love it. It's like, um, it's a different version of Stories of High Strangeness. <laughs> you know? Honestly. Some would say stranger. Some would say. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you so much. I'm going to thank Bryce for helping me with this week's research and story. Uh, Riley, thank you so much for your amazing music in every episode. Uh, My pleasure. Part one was killer. I'm sure part two that our listeners just heard will be as well. We'll be back next week. Until then, good night. And go get regressed. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray and Michael McMillan and scored and engineered by Riley Bray. Our theme song, Come Alone, is by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. Do us a favor and support the show and unlock three bonus episodes every month by becoming a member of our Patreon, BCC The Other Side, which can be found at patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.